You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Dr. Christmas, I missed you last week. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. And I'm sorry I wasn't able to be with you last week. Duty called, but here I am today. Duty calling in a different way. How are you? I am good, and I'm wondering, based on what John Perlman said, is there a science behind making peace with your ex? (laughs) Well, I don't know, but we've just published a program on The Naked Scientists all about hate and why humans have the capacity to hate, because... We have the sort of black and white of love and hate, don't we? Yeah. And it's a very interesting program episode, actually. If people want to go and have a look at that and and listen to, it's a very interesting debate which looks at sort of the theological and the the sort of evolutionary side of of why we have these abilities to have these emotions and how they tend to work out and what the consequences of them are. Um, so yes, I think so that the, the, the conclusion they reached was. Is it the podcast Yes, you go to nakedscientist.com and you'll see it's called Hate. It's it, Hatred is a Powerful <laughs> it's a Human Emotion. conversation. I like, by Ed yeah. Kessler. Okay, I found the podcast. I'm definitely going to listen. Yeah, it's a good listen. They've done a good job with that. I mean, it's, it's our Naked Reflection series. Each, each week, uh, the team at the Wolf Institute in Cambridge do a... Uh, a particular discussion on a particular topic and they they range in in sort of topic types but this one I this one I listened to this morning I thought this is a really interesting conversation between these two individuals and they do bring some very interesting perspectives to play so do give it a listen all right, O double one double eight three O seven O two in the WhatsApp line O seven two seven O two one seven O two. Doctor Chris Smith is with us and ready to answer all of your questions. So I'm going to uh, just look at the first one that I've got on WhatsApp. Doctor Chris Smith, please explain shingles occurring in senior adults. I have it for seven weeks now, and I cannot sleep because of the nagging pain under my left breast and going round to left shoulder blade. I've been told by the doctors for treatment with um, antiviral treatment and some other medication which I took orally for about 7 to 10 days. Very little relief. Many people say it comes about through stress and anxiety. Your comments would be appreciated. That's from Krish in Linasia. Hello Krish, you poor thing. You're suffering from a reactivation of one of the humankind's most common viruses, the chickenpox virus, varicella zoster virus. About 90% of people in most countries have had this, most of them when they're little, and they get chickenpox. But because this is a member of the herpes virus family of viruses, the, the hallmark of herpes viruses is that just as diamonds are forever in James Bond, herpes is for life. So once you've got one of these viruses, they have evolved to remain latent in your body for the rest of your life. And periodically, from that latent state, they can reactivate, which means that the virus comes back to life and it produces an infection again. But in the case of things like chickenpox, it doesn't do it all over the body like chickenpox did. It does it with a restricted distribution called a dermatome. So the virus will reactivate in one particular part of the nervous system and it will then bud off from the skin in that part of the body supplied by that bit of the nervous system. And so you get this often a strip or band of chickenpox-like blisters on one patch of the skin. And unlike in chickenpox where they're pretty trivial but itchy and a nuisance temporarily and then they go away, with shingles, because it's often happening quite intensely and it's in older people, you can get this quite nasty phenomenon called post-herpetic neuralgia. 
And the virus probably in its reactivation damages the nerves that it's reactivating from and it can put people into a chronic pain state. So people will often complain that the area that had the reactivation feels unusual or odd for an extended period of time afterwards and that can include it being extremely painful, just a chronic throbbing pain. You can minimise the risk of this happening by doing a few things. One of them is obviously keep yourself well because as the questioner alluded to, this is more likely to happen in people who are immunosuppressed or stressed or run down or malnourished, etc. So minimising, if you can, the great, to the greatest extent those things will minimise the chance of this happening. It does become more common as you get older for this to happen, so you must take good care of your general health as you get older to minimise the chance. The second thing you can do by way of prevention is there are some vaccines. There are two vaccines out now against this which do work very well. And they work by priming the immune system to boost your immunity so that you don't allow the virus to escape in this way for a, at least as long as the vaccine continues to work. But that's measured in years. The third thing you can do is if you think this is happening to you, and you can often tell that it is because the patch of skin that's going to get the rash on it begins to feel tingly, like almost like you've been stung on that bit of skin. And you can tell that there's just that patch of skin not feeling right. If that happens, you can visit a doctor and they can give you a drug called acyclovir, which is an antiviral drug, and if started promptly, as early as you possibly can, for a treatment course, which is a week or so, this can very significantly mitigate the impact of the shingles, it mitigates the scale of the uh, outbreak, and it can also reduce your risk of getting this phenomenon post-hepatic neuralgia. So those are the three things to do to try to minimise the chance of this happening. If it has happened to you, there are some things you can do when you're getting post-herpetic neuralgia, because often when you've got it, it's a bit too late for antivirals by then. There are some agents that can dampen down the nervous system a bit, but they do have side effects. They're not very pleasant. Some people do try low doses of certain antidepressants and also a drug called gabapentin can be used sometimes to try to control those symptoms. As I say, not pleasant um, because you do tend to get quite a few side effects with those so many people say that they'd, they'd rather have the shingles pain than the side effects you can also get some topical creams and chili ingredient capsaicin which we we associate with that burning spicy flavor of chili it can give relief when applied onto the skin when you have post-hepatic neuralgia via various mechanisms so that might be something else to consider if this is still a problem all right, thank you so, so much for that question. Let's go to Sajida in Johannesburg South. Hi. Hi, the little healer and Dr. Chris. Yes. I've got a question that's got me really stumped. Um, my husband and I are both O-positive blood group. My eldest son is also O-positive. My youngest son is B-positive. And I didn't, it didn't strike me as anything unusual until I came across the post on Instagram that said O-positive parents can only have O-positive children. And obviously that's not the case because he's got a B-positive son. So when I Googled, I can't seem to find something that really makes sense because half the people say it's impossible unless he's not your child. And the other half say that there is some kind of anomaly that you can't have a B-positive child. Um, I don't know, maybe because he's an IVF baby, that could have caused it. Or if Dr. Chris can explain to me, how does it happen? That's a very good question, Sajida. Thank you. Hello, Sajida. Well, you're right that if you have O, group O blood, the O stands for naught, no, no markers, no antigens. People who have group O blood, I'm one of them, 
don't make any of the particular sugar molecules on their cells that give them their blood group. So that's why, because we don't have those markers, we're called group O. People who are group A make A markers on their cells. People who are group B make B markers on their cells, and some people make group A and group B, so they're group AB. But as group O, we don't make any markers. Now, that means that group O is a recessive blood group. What that means is that if you have any other blood group gene in you, then you will be that blood group because it's a bit like the O is a blank canvas and you can paint onto it any colour you like and it's going to show up. So that's why group A, if you have an O gene and an A gene, you're going to be group A. If you have a B gene and an O gene, you're going to be group B. So to be group O and group O, you've got to have two O genes in each parent because otherwise you can't be group O. So therefore your offspring will only inherit a gene for group O because it doesn't matter which way you shuffle your genes, you're still going to only give O genes to your offspring. So by rights, your, your child should be group O, as you have said. So there are some possibilities here. One is the test is wrong, and whenever we get anomalous or weird test results like that in my laboratory, not I don't run a blood laboratory, I run a virology laboratory, we immediately say, I'm sceptical, I'm going to repeat the test. So I never go by a single isolated sample. We always repeat the test from the get-go with a new fresh sample of blood and a new a complete sequence of tests to make sure that that's correct. If it turns out that this is correct, then there has to be some explaining to do here because, as we've outlined, you are both group O, and as long as you are both correctly group O, so that needs checking as well because you would need to make sure that one of you wasn't covertly a different blood group that you didn't know, and that would explain it, then somewhere a B gene has cropped up. And that is hard to explain unless something else has happened in terms of how the... Uh, infant came to pee. Either one of the parents is not who they say they are, or the samples used to make an IVF baby were not the correct ones. There's a whole range of possibilities, but the first thing to do is to be doubtful of any result like that and to go back to square one and test everybody because it may be a mistake and that's what's confused everybody. Sajida, so, okay, so has the test been done more than once on yes. all of you? So my husband and I are both definitely O positive. We've had multiple surgeries and both of us two blood tests have been confirmed as O positive. Yes. My son, it first, the nurse first mentioned it when he was born that he was D positive and it, I didn't pay any attention to it. But I've checked his lab results after that from previous, from other blood tests we've done and all of them say B positive. Mm. Um, I, I, in terms of him, I, I've considered whether he is our child or not and he's a second born so he is He's a, a handful, but he's definitely got all the familiar resemblances. <laughs> so, Gina, can I ask you a very hard question? Have you ever by any chance challenged um, the, the facility where the IVF was done? Not to say that they, there was any malice or anything, but we have heard of those stories where parents think that certain, you know, egg uh, uh, things were put together yes. for the embryo, but it wasn't that. I, I didn't because I just found out about it recently. And okay. um, the thing is, he, he's got exactly, he, you know, even compared to my first child, he's got exactly a part of resemblance of my husband and resemblance of myself. And that's like going to be weird if it came from someone else. So, Judah, um, I, 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 what I want to do, 
I, I really want us to follow up on this because this is so, so fascinating. Um, can you take the suggestions that the doctor has made about which tests possibly to be repeated and maybe just to see about the, the fertility clinic or wherever you went, went, would there have been a possibility for something to have gone wrong? And I think what we can do, Dr. Chris Smith, is follow up with Sajida coming up with more information because maybe this is one, mm. one of those absolutely rare cases where it is a 100% DNA match of mom and dad, but this child somehow is B positive. Yeah. I mean, there is a possibility that something odd has happened with either of the parents' blood grouping. So yes. there might be a, an issue with a gene that means that it's not working properly. Yes. What, yet when it gets into the offspring, it is repaired and restored. That has happened in the past. So that's another possibility. But just because someone has written on a card group B plus, they may have got that wrong. And it's always worth mm. going back to square one with weird things and doing the simple stuff first, testing out the simple explanations first. And above all, it's really important that this doesn't cause any kind of family falling outs or upset or anything like that, because it can be quite traumatic for children if they think, hang on, my mum is now saying yeah. that my dad isn't who they think they are. So we don't want that to be the mm. case as well. So it's really important that everyone's reassured mm. that it doesn't matter what, what your blood group is. Your child is your mm. child and you love them regardless. So, Gita, we will catch up with you definitely um, and just do a follow-up next week. Uh, thank you so, so much. Mantani will take your details. Alfred in Ranfontein, hi. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks. And you? I'm fine. Uh, I'm uh, sorry, sorry, Alfred. My apologies. I'm about to get in trouble. I completely forgot we had to take a quick break and I want to give you ample time without rushing you. When we come back from the break, we take Alfred. The Naked Scientist. All right, we've got a couple of minutes to go. Alfred, again, my apologies. Please go ahead. Dr. Chris is listening. Uh, good afternoon, doctor. Hi, Alfred. Hi. Uh, I, I have a problem here. I'm someone who suffers from allergies. Uh, from your food allergies, eczema, almost all allergies. Uh, so I usually use the antihistamine, oral, oral antihistamine, so the nasal spray or advantage to, to, to apply on my skin if I break out. So, but my problem is, every time I go to the gym, I develop this rash. I don't know whether it's heat rash or uh, that you recurring with carrier, or is it eczema, but it only happens after at least heavy weight, and it will go away on its own after three days, but I will apply advance anyway. So I just want to know what can be the solution to this without quitting uh, the gym. If there is a permanent solution, or what causes this rush after heavy lifting when mm. I do cardio, doesn't really bother me that much. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Where do you get this rash, Alfred? Where, where does it tend to be? Is it is it on uh, certain parts of the body reproducibly? Is it everywhere? Uh, if I'm doing, let's say, I'm doing my uh, my biceps. I will actually say I'm doing maybe hundred reps, one twenty. And then when I start sweating or feeling that heat, I, I can actually see the rust developing around my elbow, the upper body, uh, at the back, and my trap. Uh, back of your knees? Like the muscle that I'm pushing hard on, it develops rush except mm. my knees. Yeah. Right. I mean, what, one possibility is you said you're quite an eczemary person. And when you get hot and you're working out, you do make more sweat. 
and you also are stretching the skin more, especially the, the parts of the body we're talking about, elbows and so on, extensor surfaces. And as you sweat and stretch the skin and move the skin, are you going to rub the skin, which is going to make it likely to become more inflamed? It's also feeling a, a higher temperature and material rubbing against it from your movements, which may also aggravate things if it's already in a state of inflammation. And if there are things in the environment that you are reacting to as an, as an eczemary, itchy, allergy-type person, then it will increase the input or entry of those materials in through the skin surface. So it may be as simple as it's just because of sweat, high temperature and something in that environment or something on your clothing, perhaps in a washing powder or a washing soap, is coming out in the sweat and getting into the skin more because of the skin movement and the higher temperature is also irritating things. So I, I think the way you get to the bottom of things like this is that you change one thing at a time and see if it makes a difference. And then you can slowly work out what it is that makes it worse. And if you know what makes it worse, you've got an idea as to how you might be able to make it better. Okay, but is it possible that I might be allergic to my own sweat? Well, it's very unlikely you'd be allergic to your own sweat because your own sweat is the material or the chemical that's, that's blood plasma that's washing around in your blood vessels. And you basically filter out the blood and the liquid from blood to make sweat. So it's very unusual that you would be allergic to your own sweat, but there is something called aquagenic urticaria, which is where people appear to have an allergy to water. And normally it's brought on by people get into the bath or the shower and then they get this intense itchy reaction on the exposed body parts. It sounds a bit different in you. And I think it's probably more, it's going to be the physical perturbation of the skin because of the fact your skin's already a bit inflamed because of the underlying eczema and anything that then physically perturbs it, the movement and the higher temperature and perhaps the sweat depositing more stuff into the skin surface, making it run off other parts of your body, that might be making things worse. But if you can find out or change one thing at a time and try and home in on exactly what it is, what the trigger is, you'll be one step closer to trying to solve it. But certainly trying to take antihistamines, if this is what's happening before you go to the gym, so you have nice high levels of antihistamines before the symptoms start, if this is because of histamine and allergy, which it sounds like it might be with an itchy skin rash that comes and goes in this way, then you have a better chance of it not happening because you've already taken the antihistamines, which will stop it happening in the first place. If you wait until you've already got the rash, it's too late by then. Thank you so much, Alfred. Uh, we don't have much time, and I don't know if this is one you can answer in about 15 seconds, Dr. Chris Smith. If not, we'll carry it over. But the question is, my daughter wants to know why is it that there's a reaction when we are tickled by someone, but not when we tickle ourselves? Well, hello, someone's daughter. And the answer <laughs> to this one is that your brain is monitoring all of the things it expects that you're going to experience because it's creating these movements. When you know you're going to tickle yourself, your brain anticipates that when I tickle myself, the following information or sensations are going to flow back into the nervous system. So the brain deletes or discards that information because otherwise we'd be driven mad by the sensation of our socks on our feet or the shirt on our back. But when someone does something that you don't know what's coming next, the brain can't cancel that stimulus because it can't anticipate exactly what it's going to be and when it's going to arrive. So as a result, it totally hijacks your attention and makes you scared. Perfectly explained. Dr. Chris Smith, thank you so much. And for those of you that are messaging, wanting to hear the podcast, I did find it. If you've uh, a podcast, any of your podcast apps, go to Naked Reflections and it is titled Hate. Thank you so much, Dr. Chris Smith.